Welcome to the Lifestyle First podcast, discussing lifestyle medicine and making self-care as easy as one, two, three. One question, two research reviews, and three actionable health tips, all centered around the Lifestyle First method, your blueprint for the 10 key roots of optimal health and happiness. And now your host, lifestyle medicine physician and coach, Dr. Alka Patel. Hello, and welcome to Series 7, Episode 3 of the Lifestyle First podcast. And the theme we're focusing on today is F for food. And the one question we're asking is, how can you eat for real change? And to answer that, I would like to introduce you to my guest today, who is Dr. Joanna Macmillan, TEDx speaker with McCary University with the talk, Eat for Real Change. And Dr. Joanna, Joanna is from Australia, originally born and raised in Scotland. And she's been living in Australia for the last 22 years and is known as one of the country's favorite well-being experts. So she's PhD qualified. She's a nutrition scientist, an accredited practicing dietitian, an adjunct senior research fellow with La Trobe University, a guest lecturer at the University of Sydney, and a fellow of the Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So a huge number of, of roles and accolades there. And on top of that, Dr. Joanna, she's also a regular on television. She's presented on the Today Show for over 15 years. She's a host on ABC's science show Catalyst. And she's also an international keynote speaker, having authored eight books, including her latest, which is The Feel Good Family Food Plan. And her first, her very first Audible original, which is called Gut full. Um, and my gut is full just saying all of that. So, Joe, I'm delighted uh, to be speaking to you today. Welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you with me. Thank you for having me on. I always think when you listen to those biographies, goodness, you know, that sounds like a lot of things, but, you know, I'm old now. So, you know, <laughs> that's been packed into a sort of 25-year career. <laughs> it's not all been done recently. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's your life's work, isn't it? And, and your life's passion, which is um, incredible. So, Joe, the great diet debates, that's what I want to talk about. They rage on, don't they? Eat more of this, eat yes. less of that, eat none of the other. It's paleo, keto, rainbow, and oh, so <laughs> many diet programs. So let's, I think, maybe let's start by just getting right into the words diet. Hmm. What do you think that word should mean? Well, you know, to a dietitian, and we have diet in our title, um, the word diet actually just means the way that you eat or the pattern of foods that you eat. But of course, diet in the popular word sense has come to mean, generally speaking, it means weight loss. So it's come to mean a weight loss diet. And, and that's not really the true meaning of diet. But the trouble is, I think I often describe um, the, the sort of world of diets as becoming very tribal. It's become this sort of almost cultish like nature that when you get involved in a particular diet, the blinkers are on, you can't see any other approach. 
um, and it becomes sort of very this is this way or the, the highway, you know. And and I think that's very very wrong. And I want to say right from the start that there are many many different ways to eat healthily, and unfortunately, there's also many ways to eat badly, and many people are eating badly. So while I'm very passionate about trying, that's what my life's work is, and my whole career has been focused on on not just diet but on the broader lifestyle medicine stream, but but primarily on diet and trying to help people to to eat more healthily because there's absolutely no doubt that the way that you eat your food choices, but also when you eat and how you eat um, are, are intricately linked with all sorts of chronic disease issues, but also the way that you feel today um, and the way that you perform today in terms of your gut health, but your brain health, your cognitive function, your brain power, um, and simply, you know, even down to the way that your skin looks. And, you know, most of us also want to look well. And of course, weight control is part and parcel of that. But unfortunately, I feel that often the whole, the whole issue of diet tends to get sidelined to be only focused on weight and we lose sight of health and some of those other aspects. So, you know, if there's any message I can get out in your podcast today, it is to kind of take the blinkers off and to recognize that there are lots of ways to eat healthily. And the trick is to find what is right for you, for your culture your background, your particular allergies and tolerances, genetic differences, environmental influences, and so on. And, and to be able to sort of tailor those general dietary advice things uh, down to, to be able to be something that works for you. Gosh, I completely echo absolutely everything that, that we're, you're saying. We need some sort of disassociation with the word diet, don't we? Because what, what often happens is that you become very defensive when you use the word diet, people are very defensive mm. about their food choices. And we've gone so far into that, that actually we've lost the true meaning of food, which is around the emotion of joy and the enjoyment and the pleasure that gives up food, that we get from our food rather than actually almost as sort of, as you say, that link between mm. diet, food and weight, and that's it. So what do you think then needs to be different? What should those diet discussions actually be about when you talk about food for real change what do you mean what i really mean is talking about not just about weight on the scales because one of the things i've heard so many times over the years from people is that they'll tell me oh but joe that diet worked for me and then i quiz them deeper and i say well what do you mean that it worked for me and then generally say oh well i lost x number of kilos or x number of pounds um, and then and then I say, and then what happened? And usually that is over a shorter period of time. Perhaps they did it for, it may have been three weeks, it may have been 12 weeks, but, you know, usually not much longer than that. And then they'll tell me, oh, well, then, you know, of course, I went back to my old ways and I regained the weight, usually with interest. And then I question them and I say, well, does that mean the diet really worked? <laughs> and they think about it and they say, well, yeah, it's just that I couldn't stick to it. So, I think one of the things that we have to reframe and what I meant by that title of my TEDx talk about Eat for Real Change was what I'm interested in and what I hope everyone listening is interested in is what happens long term. You know, it is actually not the challenge. I could put you on the chocolate bar diet and that involved you eating chocolate bars, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And as long as I got your kilojoules or your calories down, you would lose weight in the short term. But you wouldn't, no matter how much you love chocolate, you're not going to be able to keep that diet up long term. And of course, you're not going to be able to meet your nutrient needs. So your, your health is going to start to suffer, even if you've lost weight. So it is about trying to separate that sort of exclusive kind of, uh, you know, focus only on weight in the short term. And real change means get your eyes on the long term picture. 
So everything about my work and everything to do with lifestyle medicine that is now, and I've spoken at the Lifestyle Medicine Conference there in the UK as well, which is so nice to, to be involved with you guys back back in my home country, my, my uh, uh, country of my birth, um, is, is actually this movement that is talking about the fact that this is to do with long-term. It's not to do with what happens over you know, a six week or a 12 week challenge. It is about being able to maintain, maintain and, and sustain those changes long-term. And that's hard for a lot of people, isn't it? Because we look for that instant gratification, which is why we sort of almost do what it takes to follow the restrictive diets. And then, you know, as you say, we've all seen that Nike tick where the, the regain happens because we haven't moved on from that instant gratification into that longer term fulfillment about what it is we want for our health and our happiness, not just for our weight. Um, so you're absolutely spot on there, uh, I think, Joe. But undoubtedly, there is a connection with diet and disease, and we can't disconnect mm. that. You know, have to be really honest and open about that connection. I was um, looking at some statistics uh, recently related to diabetes. Um, and just, you know, if I share these with you, I'd love to know what this, these kind of echo uh, within you, but it's a simple one, two, three. And um, these are UK statistics. So the one is that one in 15 people in the UK has diabetes. And that's huge. The two, yes. the two is that two minutes... Two minutes is the time in which a new diagnosis of diabetes is made in the UK. A new diagnosis every two minutes. And wow. three, I know, and three, three hours, that's the average time a person with diabetes spends with a healthcare professional in a year, which the calculation is that leaves 8,757 hours to manage diabetes alone. And, you know, these are simple one, two, three statistics. And we know, don't we, that type 2 diabetes per se is a, it's a lifestyle disease. It's a preventable disease for at least 60% of people. So what do you think about those numbers? And how, more specifically, do you think we should eat to even start to make a dent in these statistics? Well, you know, I think these statistics really drive it home to us. And look, it is worth pointing out that some people are just going to get the bad card. You know, some of us, because of genetic predisposition or some sort of other environmental, you know, there's all sorts. Of, and I always, I always, one of the things that I find a little bit frustrating about the areas of health that I work in are the, the sort of prejudices that I come up against with people with chronic disease and specifically for people who are overweight or obese. Um, and I always try to point out to people, this is not as simple as it being about willpower or about being lazy or about being greedy. So it's none of that. It is actually the, the environment that we find ourselves in with the genetic predisposition that so many people have. The environment that we're in right now is so against a lot of what our ancestors had to deal with. And we don't have to go back to you mentioned in our introduction, the paleo diet, we don't have to go back that far. If we go back to just even my parents upbringing in Scotland, you know, that was totally different. Their food environment and their, their opportunity to move and exercise was completely different to the way that it is today. So I think that's worth just sort of putting out there that for some people, those kind of predispositions or the way they've been brought up, they're battling against all of these sort of different um, factors that are influencing their risk of chronic disease. But the bottom line is, and the statistic I always come back to, is that our colleague over in the States, who, who for a 
long time was the, the president of their American Lifestyle Medicine Association, Dr. David Katz, who I'm sure some of your listeners will have heard of. David and I presented together here in Australia. And the stat that David always puts up is that 80% of chronic disease could be prevented with lifestyle medicine, which means not just diets, but also you know things like smoking, exercise, sleep, stress management, and so on. But diet, of course, is, is one of the absolutely key factors. Um, and so really what drives me is to try to get people the right information about what it is they have to do. Um, and it's all essentially about the other, the, the other thing that I really liked in the introduction there was about joy and pleasure and eating. So I don't want people to get the idea that a healthy diet is somehow restrictive and extreme. And I think that's some of the problem with the, the, you know, the dietary cults or the dietary tribes uh, that I was talking about. They take it to such an extreme that they make it really hard to stick to and they take a lot of that joy out. So the, the truth of the matter is that if we could get people exercising a little bit more, eating better and eating better to me in, in one sentence means eating more whole foods, eating less ultra processed foods. And if we could get them doing that, there's many ways to then package up that kind of healthy diet, get them getting enough sleep get them managing their stress and make sure they've got plenty of social inter interactions. And those social interactions often involve food. You know, if you and I were to be able to get together in real life, which hopefully hopefully isn't too far away, Alka, um, you know, inevitably we would sit down and have a drink together or have a meal together. Um, certainly if you came to my house, of course I would be, I would be um, putting some food onto the table. So I think recognizing that really crucial role that food plays in our cultural and our social interactions is a huge part of being able to get that sustainable approach towards eating well. Yeah, and uh, I completely, again, echo everything you're saying simply because it is that whole wraparound of what food brings us. And it's, yes, there's nutrition and you're a nutritional scientist. So yes, nutrition mm. plays a big part. What we've become so focused on the minutiae of the nutrition that we've forgotten everything else that food brings to us, that connectivity, that you know, every event we've probably gone to, there's food associated with that. We've all got childhood memories of, of food, uh, whatever that is. And I think it's really important to bring that back into play um, as well, isn't it? And yes, absolutely, those sure. food uh, food bringers. So, you know, completely. Uh, and, and I think also that that also relates to, I mean, one of the things I talked about in my TEDx talk, which is often, it's been written about this kind of French paradox. I spent some time in France uh, when I was a teenager and when I was a young student and I was trying to learn French and I went and, and waited in Paris for a summer. And, um, and this was one of the things I talked about in, in, in my talk was, you know, the French eat white baguettes, <laughs> things that I would normally now be pushing people towards whole grain. You know, they have cheese and wine and they enjoy meals and they have some sweet stuff. And, um, but but there's, they have that pleasure and that social nature about food. And it was one of the lessons that I learned at Waitressing in Paris was this idea that the local Parisians did take time out in the middle of the day to sit down, eat with a knife and fork, actually give some priority to the meal time, and then they all went back to the work. So, so despite the fact that they perhaps had a glass of wine that they you had a French, you know, white baguette, um, they also had a big salad, they had appropriate portions of food, and then they didn't snack on ultra-processed foods between meals. So I think a really important lesson there is that, that no matter what culture you come from, there is going to be treat foods and sweet foods and party foods, and those things can absolutely be part of a healthy diet without getting to those kinds of extremes. It's about what we're doing for most of the time that, that can really make the difference. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm smiling because I was giving a talk recently on happiness and um, burnout and work-life blend and balance. And the conversation moved to, well, we've become a kind of generation of keyboard eaters. So you'll have one hand on your keyboard, <laughs> one hand on that sandwich. And you've again lost that connection between what you're eating and how you're eating and, and why you're eating. Um, and have lost all those kind of five senses that we've got that enable us to bond and form that relationship with our food and it's so important to to do that um and give your food the respect that it uh, that it merits as well by doing that as well don't you think for sure and I, I you know i do think that that's been a key problem that food has somehow lost its priority in our lives in a way um that while we still might go out for dinner or we still eat a lot and people are generally overeating but it's because we're doing this kind of grazing all of the time. And as a dietitian, when you quiz people, um, and I know this both from, from working um, in clinical practice, but also working in research where you're trying to ask people about what they've eaten. So often, I mean, the dietary recall is, is very bad. And a lot of that is because we completely forget about that sandwich we ate while we were answering emails mm-hmm. or, you know, the chocolate bar you picked up at the garage while you're filling up with petrol and you ate it in the car driving because, you know, we're not mindfully eating. We're, um, and there's a sort of big movement to sort of get people to really connect or, you know, sit down. And if you're going to eat a chocolate bar, you know what? Sit down, eat it really slowly, savor every mouthful and truly enjoy it, you know. And, and that's a very different thing to this kind of guzzling down. I remember doing a, a survey of women for one of my previous books where I asked them about, would you eat differently if you were on your own or when you were with other people? And one of the ladies' comments really stuck in my mind. And she said, of course I do. I would never wolf down a family block of chocolates, you know, in front of anybody else. But if I eat it really quickly, surely the calories don't count. And of course, she was being a little bit tongue in cheek. But I do think that that's kind of a little, a little bit illuminating of the way that we're eating with this kind of mindlessness uh, where we're eating in front of the television. We know from research studies that, that if you're eating in front of the television or with other distractions like your email, um, you're not actually aware of when you're satisfied. The Japanese talk about harahachibu, which is eating until you're 80% full. And you can't know when you're 80% full because when you're watching your favorite TV show, you're just going to eat until the plate or the bowl is empty. And that's exactly what we've seen happening. I think we've sort of got this disconnect with food where we're almost constantly sort of running after or craving that satisfaction that we should be getting from a meal and that we're not getting because either we're eating the wrong foods or we're, or we're simply distracted by other things and, and not giving food the priority it deserves. Ah, no, you're reminding me of some GPS and sat nav when you're in your car and you've got your sat nav on and you end up going from A to B. If you look back, you have no idea how you got where you got to, but you did. But it was such a mindless journey. And it's the same with food. You know, how That's did, right. How did I get to where I got to? How did I gain all this weight? Well, actually, your journey with food has been, you know, less conscious. It's been less mindful uh, than it could have been. And that's why you kind of end up where you where you end up, because that relationship um, has changed, hasn't it? But, um, yeah, no. That's right. And I think I think we've also got we, we forget, what, I think, also about the emotional connection that we have with food. And that's more I'm I'm filming with ABC Catalyst, the, the science show here in Australia at the moment. We're doing an episode on fasting. And one of the things that getting people fasting and and they're on different various fasting regimes and we're doing all sorts of different kind of measurements and experiments on them. Um, But one of the things that's been really interesting to me is this 
um, uh, that people's emotional connection to food, this almost, I've got a couple of people who almost panic at the idea that they're not going to be able to eat for a set number of hours. Um, that it's really, you know, normally I've got one lady who always has food in her handbag because she's so worried about being without food. And that's sort of a strange position to be in when, you know, we all, the people that I'm, I'm filming with are all living here in Sydney. Food is around us pretty much 24 seven. Yet we've got this kind of inbuilt sort of fear of an attachment to food. And sometimes I think we've really got to kind of work on that relationship with food a little bit better if we're to have a better relationship with both ourselves and with food. And, and that's a real key to that sort of long-term change that we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. So just picking up on something else you said then about processed food, I just wonder whether that uh, that lady, that mm. client you're talking about, carried an apple in her bag or a, a bar of, you know, something very processed. Um, and we certainly, again, know, you know, uh, there's again been lots of research. I was reading something by um, a team called Malik and Willett and Hugh. Mm. 2013, I think it was, where they were again looking at the prevalence of obesity and where it was increasing most rapidly. And actually, those dietary patterns where you've got more consumption of processed food, added sugar, refined grains, mm. animal fat, that's where you were seeing that higher incline um, in levels of obesity. Um, and I just wondered, you know, maybe if you could just expand on, on the processed food side, because again, probably like if there's one thing that listeners took away from today, it would be really thinking about how to deprocess uh, your food choices and what you're carrying with you and what you're reaching for in the supermarket aisles. Um, what's your kind of approach yeah. to deprocessing food? Yeah, you're hitting one of my buttons there, Alka, for sure. Look, there's a, there's a, you know, over the years in my career of sort of 25 odd years, you know, we've moved from kind of low fat, we've moved to, oh dear, it wasn't fat. The problem must be carbs, we're blaming carbs. Now we've got these people, you know, I deal with people who've sort of still got a hangover of the low fat era. Now they're scared to eat carbs as well. And, you know, protein's been the darling of the moment, but now we've got research, you know, that's pretty solid showing that a high protein diet might be great when you're in your fertile years trying to make babies, but later Later on in life, a high protein, if you have a high protein uh, diet from midlife on, it, it can potentially shorten your lifespan. So now there's sort of suddenly question marks being raised about protein. And do you know what it comes down to to me is there's a classification of foods that talks about, it's called the NOVA classification of foods. And it actually sort of categorizes foods from completely whole foods, as in a carrot or a potato or a grain direct from the ground, right up to level five. I think it's just five categories. Number five is, is ultra-processed foods. And that's why you'll hear me talk about ultra-processed rather than processed. So in the middle, so the ultra-processed foods, I should explain, are made from ingredients that have already been extracted from a plant or extracted from an animal, highly refined. On the ingredients list, you may not even recognize it as a food, maybe a chemical additive or something. So you can immediately read this sort of paragraph long of ingredients and recognize this is an ultra-processed food. And then we have various degrees in between. Now, the reason that I don't say all processing is bad is because cooking is in, in itself processing or canning tomatoes or canning chickpeas. Now, these are all foods that are really good for us. And often that small level of processing can actually do us some good. So, you know, processed tomatoes into a tomato paste or a tomato puree actually increases the amount of lycopene, one of the carotenoids that's present um, in tomatoes. We get more lycopene. Um, you know, cooking often makes things, well, you know, in, in many ways, it's what makes us human. There's a sort of whole theory around the idea of cooking is what brought us sort of flavorful food, it made food safer, it allowed us to eat lots of different foods 
that we'd never been able to eat before. So legumes and whole grains are good examples of that. Um, and so, you know, these sorts of levels of processing are really good. Buying your canned chickpeas or canned tomatoes is really useful. It is, it's convenient. It's cost effective. It's a way of reducing food waste, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not about fearing any level of processing. You don't have to eat everything absolutely from scratch yourself, but it's about avoiding those ultra-processed foods. And now we've got this emerging research coming out. It's not definitive yet. You know, nutrition is a very young science. You know, we still have a lot to learn, but certainly this emerging research is, is showing quite clearly that it's having too many of these ultra-processed foods. So as you said, the highly refined, so don't throw all grains in the bad basket. It's the highly refined grain products where often they're mixed with added sugars, the wrong kinds of fats to make highly palatable foods, you know, like pastries and croissants and biscuits and cakes and lollies and so on. These are the foods that are really, really bad for us. Whereas were you to have the rolled oats or the bulgur wheat or the quinoa or, you know, the beautiful whole grain sourdough bread, these are foods that are still, we know that are really good for us. So that's what this research is very clearly sort of starting to define. And I love this approach because it sort of puts to bed all this controversy there is over whether is it fat that's the problem is it carbs that are the problem is it gluten is it trans fats is it saturated fat actually is it sugar you know all of these sorts of questions these uh, components are all what are the bad things about ultra processed foods so carbs aren't bad you know glucose is running in your blood in a very tight range because that's what we run on we run on fat and and, and primarily glucose um, and it's always a combination of both fat and glucose. So carbs aren't bad. They're just a nutrient. It's not a food group, it's, but it's about the, the, the food. And I think that that's what that Nova classification is so good. So, you know, when you're thinking about what you're eating, rather than classifying food as I shouldn't have that, it's carbs, or I shouldn't have that, it's high fat, think about how processed it is. And if it's falling into that basket of being ultra processed food, then do you know what? That's a food you shouldn't have too often. Um, if at all, and really sort of try and shift down to the other end of the spectrum. Mm, yeah, no, I, I really like that. Um, certainly, if you can't pronounce what's on the back of the label, or it's a really because a lot of gobbledygook and you don't understand it, the chances are that that is ultra processed. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. For sure. That, uh, you know, really important to shift well away from kind of packaging food as carb, protein, fat, and really thinking of it as whole food. You know, that is what, what food is. And we rarely eat one item in isolation. We also eat things together, don't we? So it really is thinking about, you know, food yeah. as, your, as your package, not of what is that isolated uh, nutrient in it or what label are we mm. going to give that. But, you know, I really actually do love that, that classification of moving away uh, from uh, processed, ultra processed food and into the spectrum of where you get into much more real food that you can pronounce and you've known these words from your childhood so you know exactly what, what these things are. Thank you, uh, thank you for that. And now, here is your lifestyle first prescription. Your three activating actions to take you from knowing to doing. So have you got three actions for our listeners today? So, well, my actions are one is to eat more whole foods, especially plant foods. Now, I am actually a big believer in eating some animal foods. There are particular nutrients that you only get from animal foods. Um, so unless you, for ethical or moral or religious reasons, want to be vegetarian or vegan, um, then, you know, I do promote having some animal foods in there. Um, but definitely most of us need to eat more plant foods. So that's my number one. Um, look for those sort of whole foods in your diet. 
My second one is actually going to move away from diet, and that is move more. And that means exercise, but also activity. So, you know, in my my uh, life before becoming a dietitian, I was actually a fitness instructor, and I taught group exercise for 15 years. It's still a very important part. And, you know, as I get older, I'm in my late 40s now, um, I, you know, I recognize the role that exercise plays in aging well. Um, so it is so important, and especially for us women, we really need to work on maintaining our muscle mass and exercise. I get frustrated because people always say, well, exercise is, is not a good way to lose weight. That's just totally underestimating the, the impact of exercise. So that's my second thing. You absolutely must move more. And I always talk about exercise activity slightly separately. So, you know, it doesn't mean you've got to go to boot camp or slog your guts out at the gym if that's not your thing. Um, it is just about building movement. It might be gardening or doing Tai Chi or going to a dance class. You know, my mum uh, taught, taught country, Scottish country dancing for many years. Years. That was her gig. Um, so, you know, whatever it is, but we have to move more. Um, and then my third thing um, is actually, again, going to be away from away from food, but it is going to be about getting enough sleep. So really, this is pulling in some of the elements of, of lifestyle medicine, because what I've seen time and time again, I do a lot of work with corporates and I see when they're highly stressed and they're sleeping badly, they almost covet the whole I can survive on very little sleep. What I see happening with those people is that that has a knock-on effect on what you choose to eat. So I see people who are sleep deprived, craving fatty foods, very sugary foods, uh, just craving the wrong things as a kind of energy pick me up. And so one of the most positive things you can do is to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. It helps you to cope with stress. And I know, you know, we're still in the midst of this pandemic um, that is worldwide. And, you know, that is bringing some anxiety to, to all of us. Um, and, you know, your resilience against stress actually is improved if you're getting enough sleep. So those things interact. So often when I'm working with people and my target might be getting you eating better, I know that if you're also getting enough sleep, if you're managing your stress and you're doing some exercise, that makes it easier for you to eat well. So I think if you pull those things in together, I've, I've sneakily stuck stress on there too, Alka, that's really four points. But <laughs> bringing those things together is what's going to make it easier for you to ultimately eat well. Fabulous. Eat, move, sleep. 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 <laughs> yeah. I love making it simple. You know, I have a I have a sort of big picture kind of brain. And, yeah. and that's ultimately what my job is, trying to translate science into what does it mean for you and I and everyone else in terms of our daily choices. And so, yes, that's what ultimately what it comes down to. I like that. Eat, move, sleep. Done. <laughs> Amazing, Joe. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm sure people are going to want to find out more about you, connect with you. What's going to be the easiest way to, uh, to reach out? Yeah, I'd love people to connect with me on social media. So my website is just drjoanna.com.au, but also connect with me on Instagram. I always post recipes and nutrition tips and, and other bits and bobs. You'll see a, a bit of my cute dog on there as well. Forgive the dog pics, but uh, they tend to get the most likes. So that's just Dr. Joanna McMillan on my Facebook professional page too. And so, yes, I love for people to connect and hopefully have a listen to my books. Yes, Audible is uh, is my current love of, of getting some good information out there for people who want to, to walk or drive their car and listen at the same time. Um, you can find me on there. Amazing. You've got such a breadth of work, as you say, it's, you know, your lifelong, lifelong work, which is accessible to, to everybody in various formats. So I will certainly put up all your links and including your TEDx talk. If anyone hasn't listened to it yet, please do. So I'll certainly be popping that link in the description as well. And that sadly brings this week's conversation to a close. So uh, thank you everyone who's listening. And that leaves me simply to wish you all a happy, healthy day.
Thanks for joining us on the Lifestyle First podcast, making self-care as easy as one, two, three. Don't forget to subscribe and share, and we'd love it if you'd be kind enough to leave a review. To learn more or to arrange a consultation, please visit www.dralkapatel.com. See you next time.